0: Well, no. And if if I remember that interview, I said that's never going like like yeah. you just that people keep thinking that, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and it's just a really dumb way to look at things. Maybe we're at that moment now. It's took a long time. I mean, not that people haven't voted for Democrats, but point of that um, was more that you know if things get bad enough, I don't know, then maybe we'll get universal health care or something mm-hmm. like that, and maybe we're on the brink of it. Maybe things are that bad now. I don't know. There's always
1: a you know a slight kind of course correction every time this happens. I mean, there's a reason why. Why it pretty much alternates between republicans and democrats in the main office but it's hard to imagine things being as fractured as they are now that there's any ever going to be any kind of really sort of unified force behind a candidate right in the way that there had been in the past right one of the things i was wondering having read that interview was you know in the god i guess what 20 almost 25 years since 1994 (laughs) at this point, when you look back on that time, whether you feel that your politics or point of view have radically changed.
0: I don't actually think they have. I think uh, I've been uh, agitating for a lot of the same things, single-payer health care, gun control, these sorts of issues, really, for all that time. And on some of that, I feel like there's maybe it's a reaction to trump maybe people are just fed up but you know the the younger voters the the democratic socialists the uh that movement that's coming along people are really starting to view these things as possibilities that could happen in a way that they just didn't 25 years ago
1: i mean it feels like there's always some sort of you know undercurrent happening but do you feel like it is radically different from that standpoint that people are taking it seriously in ways that they hadn't in previous you know years or decades
0: I think there was a uh, a sort of centrist democratic conventional wisdom point of view that kind of ruled the debate for a long time and a lot of ideas were just outside the parameters of the debate and I think there's this generation of young voters coming up saying well you know we don't agree with your your self-imposed limitations on this we want we want a better society
1: I mean that's going to continue to be the struggle given the way politics Have worked out and are shaped here, especially with what is ostensibly a two party system, right? I mean, invariably. It seems you're always going to have to sort of choose between going off on your own and getting the, the feeling that you're kind of throwing your vote away or going centrist or, or maybe. picking I the mean, lesser. Or
0: maybe the Democratic Party is genuinely going to be pushed to the left. I mean, maybe maybe ideas like a universal basic income will be taken seriously finally. Does
1: that feel like it could actually be happening? You know, we we still have the same structures in place that, that we, we have, and the, the DNC certainly feels pretty much the same as it has before.
0: Yeah, but don't you think... Um, I mean, I mean, I feel like they were profoundly shaken yeah. by Cassio cortezs yeah. victory. You know, I've been hanging out with a kind of younger crowd since I came to New York, and it just, there's a lot of
1: energy there. There's a lot of uh, a sense that you could really change the world. It did feel like this crazy, unbelievable thing that had happened. And and I mean, the victories that Bernie Sanders had early on also felt like that to some degree. Yeah, definitely. And it felt like, for a while at least, it felt like there was a chance that he'd go all the way. But I, I just, you know, I've heard people firmly entrenched in the Obama camp and firmly entrenched in Hillary's camp, you know, essentially say that, oh, well, the lesson in all this is that we need to recruit more people on the right, that it's the same lesson that they've taken away. Well,
0: and that that is the wrong lesson. That I, I hope that people will understand that that is the wrong lesson. If this era has taught us anything, yeah. it's there are a lot of unpersuadable voters. You don't win them over, you defeat them.
1: Has comics been a way to agitate for you? I think that's basically what I've been doing for... However, however long it's been, my God. <laughs> so it so you were pretty much political on the page from the outset. I started doing this because I loved comics,
0: and it had the the very very early stuff had a, a, a sort of tangential political commentary mm. aspect to it. And the uh, the first Gulf War was what made me realize that I was a political cartoonist because I was marching in the street and very angry about things, and I suddenly realized I had a space in newspapers, I had a platform that I ought to be using for this. It wasn't as if I was doing Garfield one day and then suddenly doing political commentary the next,
1: but it did reorient how I approached the work. Uh, There wasn't a seismic shift, it was kind of gradually started seeping in. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of took it over during the Gulf War. At the time that you started, was there an absence of that kind of progressive voice in daily or weekly political cartoons?
0: Yeah, I mean I was sort of the second wave of the all-weekly cartoonists. First you had Matt Groening, Linda Berry, yeah. Charles Burns. Um, and M- Matt Groening uh, was
1: always a little political. but But not Yeah, You know, not 100%
0: political. The film director, David Lynch, had a strip in those days uh, (laughs) called The Angriest Dog in the World. It was literally the same three panels every time with a word balloon coming out of the window that was usually saying something very enigmatic. Um, That doesn't sound like
1: the David Lynch I know. (laughs) 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 Things sure Um, have changed in David Lynch's land.
0: There's a very old cartoon of mine that's in the big 25 year compilation that I put out a couple of years ago that makes fun of that comic but I think really it's it's a deep cut. There was a sort of second wave of cartoonists that came along and I was part of that and even at that moment, you know, in retrospect, I was it was exactly the right moment, the papers were still looking for Something to fill their uh, fill their space, something to get readers back to read the classifieds, whatever I was able to start running in a lot of those papers very quickly. It kind of once it took off, it really took off in terms of this all weekly political cartooning i was I was certainly one of the pioneers of that
1: that particular strip didn't start off being political; it was already in papers by the time you made that shift.
0: Yeah, but it was in some papers, and then once it became more political, that was uh, that appeared to be what people, what the what editors wanted. Because then I went from like ten papers to a couple hundred in a very short period of time. You
1: know, I was going to ask if there was any sort of pushback. You know, obviously these papers didn't sign up for a political strip, and then it became political. You know, not that I not that I recall. Again, this is coming from somebody who wasn't like particularly conscious of what was happening. When the, as the Gulf War was happening, but it, at least in hindsight, it doesn't seem like it was a particularly popular war. The first Gulf War yeah. was not, no. You, well,
0: let, let me let me go back and rephrase yeah. that. It, like all of these wars, it had a lot of support sure. among the general public, among the news media. Yeah. That's, that's the sort of thing I was writing about. So in my bubble, <laughs> in my bubble, yeah. it was not a popular war, I should say.
1: It's an easier target, for example, than a war that we start because, you know, the largest attack on American soil had ever happened. That
0: was a lonelier moment to yeah. be doing the work I do because that had, yeah, enormous support even among liberals. There were there were people who then later became very prominent critics of the Bush administration who initially supported the Afghanistan war, for instance.
1: Were you in New York during 9-11?
0: I was. I I stood on the rooftop of my building in Brooklyn and watched, literally watched the towers collapse.
1: So... Once you've internalized what's happening, and at some point you do have to get back to the strip, you must be pretty trepidatious when you do approach the topic or or sort of get back into political commentary at that time.
0: I mean, that's an extreme example. I mean, I I have to sort of figure out what's happening and what I want to say about it every single week. That was just uh, a very extreme example of that. But it was really clear really, really quickly that we were about to head into a period of stupid jingoism that we were really about to go off the rails so it was not it was not that difficult the difficult thing was uh, i mean this was pre-social media but i had a blog and email and all of that and
1: i got a lot of a lot of
0: negative pushback on my
1: work and especially those first couple of months right after 9-11 i think it's pretty much universally accept that The Onion had a smart and good approach to it afterwards. When something like that happens, what was your approach at the time?
0: Boy, I should have reread some of my own work to prepare <laughs> for this. I have the worst memory for it. But I, I, I just... I mean, that must have been a pretty I, defining I, moment for you. I, yeah. I mean, I started retaliating, starting the war in Afghanistan. This, this all came in very quickly. Yeah. And I was writing about how this could all go terribly wrong, and we needed to be really careful. I don't have the work here in front of me, but I have gone through it in the past couple of years because I put together this big uh, Kickstarter compilation a few years ago. I I mean, this was all obvious, and I was not the only person saying it. There were millions of people protesting in the streets around the world. Um, But a lot of what I wrote basically turned out to be true like people were saying oh this will be easy it'll be a cakewalk remember all that you know they're gonna uh, you know it'll we'll we'll be in and out it'll be very be very very cheap and easy and i was kind of the Guy in the back of the classroom with my hand raised, saying, I, "I, I, do not know if this is true." Yeah, and and also then you immediately had a, a lot of racial profiling. You, you had a lot of negative yeah. stuff that really blew up right away. So there there was plenty to write
1: about. What impact has social media had on you and your work?
0: Good and bad. I mean, a, a torrent of feedback can be an exhausting thing. And and I don't I don't actually engage with Facebook very much. Somebody else. I have a Facebook page that somebody else post cartoons I actually don't even know what's on it but I'm on Twitter all the time uh, and I like it I mean it's a it's a constant source it's a self curated constant source of information and insight I have made a lot of people a lot of friends that are now real-life friends as a result Mm of uh, uh, being on Twitter and getting to know people there so you know it can be a, a, a hellhole it can be exhausting and and there's always that uh that mob attack thing that happens but overall you know if you'd asked me this two or three years ago i might have had an entirely different uh answer but overall i i have found it to be very useful and in many ways a positive uh force in my life and in my work
1: you know moving to the internet as a platform obviously that's going to drastically change your your audience and, and your reach
0: well yes and no because uh And this is the thing I've noticed since I moved back to New York. You know, when I lived here in 2000, I was running in the Village Voice. uh, Everyone in a certain demographic read that paper. I never had to explain who I was. Online, you're competing with everything. You're competing with, you know, the Colbert Show and all the writers. and, And I actually should say... One of my friends is a writer for Colbert, and I'm not disrespecting this, but, uh, <laughs> but you're competing with in some cases some very good things. You're competing with very good things. Yeah. You're competing with you know places that have staffs of writers, uh, you, know, uh, you, with, you yeah. know, tons of people uh, all putting together their best ideas. So it's like. Uh, before before this before this was so big, you know, there was more room and kind of the margins. There was more room to mm-hmm. to be well known at a lower level, and now it feels like everything is competing with the biggest thing on the internet at all times, and it's actually it's just it's much harder. I think I I, I guess I f- my reach is broader but shallower. It feels like.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of what I was getting at is that. Um you know you expect a certain not homogenous but you expect a certain audience from a lot of from people who are picking up like alternative weeklies for example right and especially in again for the most part the um alternative weeklies that decide to pick you up right they right. they know who their readerships are right so um to a certain degree you anticipate that people who are going to kind of come across this organically in print are people who are going to be you know relatively like yeah exactly um that's what changes when you go online right, right. is that uh, the, the people who share things aren't always sharing things because they think it's good or saying hey check this thing out that i agree with uh, yeah i
0: i mean often they are sometimes yeah. they're not um but yeah no it's it's uh you're reaching a you're reaching a broader audience you're reaching often a, an audience that um you know, I may I may be writing about something that feels like a basic understood fact in the world mm-hmm. and you're reaching an audience that it's you know, there will be someone that it's the first time they've ever heard this idea and they can't believe that you're talking about it, you know, things like that. Does that impact the the, the strip or, or the way you do it? No, I I um that sort of thing I just ignore. Uh what I what I, I think the struggle, um is to try to figure out, because, you know, when you're online a lot, when you're on social media a lot, you ha- you, you have to keep in mind that not everyone is. You know, yeah. journalists and cartoonists, you know, we this is a lot of what we're doing. But that's its own bubble. So something that may just be, you know, the most popular uh, uh, joke or, or reference on Twitter any given week, mm. um, you always have to try to figure out can I reference this? Is anyone outside of this bubble going to understand what yeah. I'm talking about? How much do I have to explain it? Um, more and more people generally tend to understand these things. They they will bubble up from Twitter and then work their way into the real world. I mean, we have a, you know, our president is, is an Internet troll right now, so uh, people are paying more attention. He's basically
1: a Gamergate character. No, he
0: totally is. I mean it would not surprise me if he was, you know, on 4chan under some... <laughs> just shitposting? Uh, just shit posting under some... Uh, uh, you know Don alias. Jr. is. I mean, you've oh, seen Don oh, Jr.'s Instagram. No
1: you know that he's on message boards shitposting yeah, yeah. all the time. But,
0: you know, that stuff has now... Gamergate, people didn't take Gamergate seriously, but now we have a Gamergate president. Uh, I have a friend named Anna Merlin who wrote an article about this a few years mm-hmm. ago. Just, you know, people choosing someone to dox and then sending a thousand pizzas or whatever. Lo- or swatting, for instance, where. They, they will call in they will a hostage crisis and you know people can and there's an example right there I say swatting and I'm thinking do people but but that's a common term now right
1: well um, every, I can guarantee everybody listening to this well, no, but,
0: no. but I mean that's the sort of no. thing I have to think about when I'm writing in yeah. the cartoon if I throw out the term swatting is that going to be understood widely
1: I mean the flip side of that though is that everybody has Google yes so of course can and, and yet
0: you would be amazed at how often people write me asking to explain something when you know there used to be this great you website said I would
1: be amazed, Tom, you said I would be amazed, but as somebody who works for TechCrunch and his, whose handle is connected to every story that I write, it's clear to me that 99% of the people just read the headlines. There,
0: there used to be a website uh, called, here, let me Google that for yeah, you, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. could send someone yeah. a link. it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a smart-ass thing to do. Sure. I, I, um, but anyway, so uh, this article that this friend of mine wrote about uh, uh, doxing and all of that, local police departments didn't understand it a few years ago. They didn't. They they would say things like, "Well, just turn off the internet." We yeah. can't turn off the internet. It is the primary yeah. communications network of is, of the. People, like, why would how, you take
1: nude pictures if you don't want them on the internet? No, yeah. Um. And and I
0: hope more and more people yeah. are starting to recognize that the internet is a is is just where human beings interact. It's not some magic. It's not some video game. It's not some magical fantasy land that has no uh, uh, relevance to the real world. Um, you know, it is uh, arguably why Donald Trump is
1: president. The fact that everybody has a platform, the fact that it, that everybody is, you know, a comedian, and the fact that that we have a president who is on an abstract level very funny—that they're, you know, they're very, yeah. you know, what I mean. No, I, again, like, <laughs> let me clarify by saying, you know, taking out any sort of like real-world ramifications is right. just a, a, an absurd character, right? Um, does that th- does that make you? up your game i mean that was this was the whole thing right the whole the whole debate about him coming in about whether you know it was going to be a boon for comedians but the fact of the matter is like nobody wants to read you making a, a joke about his weave
0: so satire um is the art of taking things to the the most absurd extreme in order to make a point point. and the problem for cartoonists and comedians is that we are living in the most absurd yeah. extreme it it is really hard to come up with a ridiculous scenario every day that is more absurd than what happens every day so that's the constant challenge he is not he is he is an anti-boon for for humorous I had a it was much it was much easier and much more interesting for me during the Obama administration I had many critiques from the left of, of what Obama was doing I had critiques of the drone war the kill list I had critiques of the surveillance state these were interesting things to write about, and and they were provocative and challenging things to write about. In this era, I don't know. Everyone knows Trump is an idiot. Yeah. Everyone knows that everything he's doing is insane. It's just very hard to find a space where there's anything interesting to write about that's just not self-evident. Um, it's also... It's just the overload of it is exhausting. It's like uh, you're in a restaurant, you ask for a glass of water, and they bring out a fire hose and blast you in the face. You know, it's it's just, it's too much. One of the many upsides
1: of having uh, an Obama in office versus having a Trump in office, from uh, I suspect your standpoint, is the fact that I would be concerned that, again, you know, the things being as siloed as they are, and even prior to that, everything being you're stripping in, um, like, as you said, you know, sort of simpatico papers, is that perhaps you worry about preaching to the choir too much, or being a part of an echo chamber, but y- you're you're providing an, a valuable service when you're critiquing a Democrat from the left. I mean, because you're speaking to those people who, you know, let, let's be honest, Obama was, was worshipped by a lot of people, and in some cases, Oh yeah, no, a lot so. of
0: people got very, people got very mad at me every yeah. week for the things that I wrote in those days, but I felt I felt that it was an important thing. I felt they were important things
1: to write about. I recently spoke to actually Matt Groening about this, who I think ended his trip in like 2012, and he mm-hmm. told me that after 36 years or however long he had been doing Life in Hell, that he ended up doing like he would wake up the morning it was due and start working on it. I would
0: not want to do that. I like to take um, and because I have the uh, the luxury of a weekly deadline, although it's a it's a blessing and a curse yeah. because you know keeping up with a new cycle that changes literally hourly has become very exhausting uh, you know, I used to be able to. I, you know my my cartoon goes live online on monday mornings uh, i used to be able to work on something the week before file it by thursday or friday like this is clearly going to be the big this news thing this is clearly the, the thing week. i'm writing about you know and unless there's some huge news event uh that that changes things you know and that happens occasionally but not not on a regular basis you know i knew i was good i could uh i could i could knock off i could take off a three day weekend or i could uh uh spend the rest of the week taking care of business things. I run my, you know, I run all my own business stuff too. And I never really can quite set it aside anymore. What I had to come to terms with was just the fact that I am not, that I'm a cartoonist. I'm not a news service. Mm -hmm. And if the cartoon is about something that people were talking about, you know, I mean, we're living in dog years right now. Uh, uh, You can, you can write about something at the beginning of the week that seems like the most important topic. I did a cartoon about the nominee, uh, the, the the nomination of Kavanaugh, yeah. and by the time it ran, uh, we, I, I, we were on to something else. It might have been the the children at the border. I'm not even. I'm blanking right now. But like, it had just been forgotten by the time it ran. It was insane, and that happens. Easily half the time, if not more,
1: that happens on a much larger degree with doing the show. I'm lucky in that I've done enough of these that I've like got a number of them banked. But mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was going back and editing an interview with uh, Kevin Allison of the State, and he was talking about the children being separated at the border, and I was like, "This is gonna date." this mm-hmm. in a way that it wouldn't before because i don't know like this nope. is the this is the, the we, low it, bar it's,
0: it's insane how quickly we yeah. move on i mean we were talking about the president paying off his his uh which uh, one porn actor <laughs> right which which one <laughs> puerto rico is still in crisis flint michigan still doesn't have drinking water yeah. like like there there's it's we have a thousand things going on at any given moment and I, it's like our brains can't keep all these thoughts in our, our heads at the same time, and, and so if these things just get shunted aside. Ultimately,
1: in your opinion, what is the role of satire? Okay, so I'm pausing. <laughs> <laughs> it you wouldn't know. be a good question if you could... No, I mean, I, I've
0: I've had to... I'm, I'm reconsidering it a bit, because yeah. one answer I would have for that is that it's not about persuasion so much as about... Um, You're well, not trying to change minds. Well, let me get back to that, But but I would have said that it was about delegitimizing points of view that I find abhorrent or or mm-hmm. incorrect humor, and if people are arguing that, well, like like what Sasha Baron Cohen did recently, uh, got people to uh, speak out in favor of children, of, of kindergartners with the gun, yeah. having their own guns, you know, you know, this is a way of delegitimizing the pro-gun by just making them look foolish. Yeah. So that that's one part of it, you know. As I say, so I'm back in New York, I'm meeting a lot of people, I'm meeting a lot of younger people who keep saying, okay, I was reading your work when I was a Kid and mm. it actually helped change my mind. It helped. It helped me
1: uh, uh, sort of formulate f- it.
0: formulate uh, my own opinions. So, so maybe it goes a little deeper than I've given it credit for.
1: What brought you out here?
0: Uh, to New York? To New York, yeah. Uh, my, uh, my life hit an iceberg yeah. and I needed somewhere to land. It's a good place to do that. Yeah, I needed, it, it's, a. I I mean, I've lived here a lot yeah. of my life
1: previously, uh, and I, uh, I needed to, uh, I needed somewhere to reinvent my life. It's an interesting mix of, I mean, there's a certain degree of anonymity to it, right? I mean, you can sort of go your own way. There's so many people here right. You can just kind of right. disappear if if you want to, I'm trying not to do that. Do you feel that, um, that living in the city is having, it sounds like it's having an impact on your work, or at least the sort of conversations you're having around it?
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's impacting the work directly. Yeah. I mean, I've just, I, I, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I've just been through uh, uh, kind of uh, unexpected and yeah. massively traumatic uh, life change. And when that hit, I thought about taking a break from the work. And then I decided that everything in my life was suddenly up in the air and having the weekly deadline was still going to provide me with routine and stability. And so I decided that I was just going to keep plowing away at that. I don't don't know that being in the city has changed work. I think that I've just been going through a lot in my personal life and it's been good to just keep doing the work and to keep trying to do good work. And honestly, I mean, I usually, when I finish a cartoon, I usually, you know, I usually hate it and I, I just can't even think about it. And then I'll go back and look at it and say, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad. And and I was going back and looking at the work I have done over the past six months in this incredibly uh, difficult moment. And I was, I, I was happy with it. I thought I've actually, I've actually been Doing decent work despite everything.
1: When you had the experience of putting the the book together a few years ago, I mean, this was a, it was a pretty complete anthology. Did you learn anything? Did, were there any surprises f- for you
0: about your work? Well, that was actually okay. So I had a similar experience there. So I, um, you're talking about the the Kickstarter. I, I had this idea that I thought I think um, that was
1: right around the last time we spoke. Was, yeah, yeah, I
0: did just. Well, that was when IDW put out the second edition. But I I realized that I was coming up on a 25-year anniversary Mm. of doing this work, and I realized that it was, you know, I have put out a bunch of compilations every couple of years, but it wasn't... Floppies. It wasn't, yeah, you know, normal paperbacks, uh, trade paperbacks. But there was just all this stuff that wasn't organized, that wasn't, you know, I I realized basically that if I got hit by a truck, no one was ever going to be able to put this together in any coherent form. So I got this idea of putting out this giant two-volume, uh, a compilation of everything a I have done. I now anything. I can be. Now I can walk out and be hit <laughs> by a truck. I'm, I'm very relieved by this. And no, at that moment. You know, no no publisher in the world was going to say sure let's yeah. let's put out a hundred dollar uh, book for this obscure all weekly cartoonist. Yeah. So I turned to Kickstarter, and we were successful beyond our wildest dreams on that. The, the, yeah, I worked with some people on that. We had to get all that put together. Like like it was sort of an act of faith because once you once you launch the Kickstarter, then people don't want to wait two years to get their yeah. product. We had to have a lot of that book written and laid out and organized and and in whatever the design program what You know, it had to be ready to go. Uh, so I spent a year, uh, and these people I worked with spent a year just doing all this basically on faith, just basically hoping that we were going to hit our mark with the Kickstarter, and happily we did, and, and it all worked out. And I so I spent a year going over, you know, literally my life's work. And I had the same response, uh, uh, similar to what I was just saying a couple of moments ago. That I, I went back and looked at it. I kind of approached it with great trepidation. I thought I might have to like burn everything to the ground and salt the <laughs> earth and never look at it again. But it felt like good work. It felt like I hadn't been wasting my life, and that was that was um, that was a good a good way to come out of that process rather than looking over and thinking, Jesus, this is all
1: terrible. <laughs> I respect or at least understand why a Sure, would be a little wary of that, not only just because of the the, the size of it, but because like, it's a fifteen pound book. Yeah, but but, but even <laughs> but beyond that, beyond the sort of herniated discs, the fact that comedy doesn't always age well, and political comedy, especially, you know, does, doesn't doesn't right, always age right. well. Did, did you find that that wasn't necessarily the case going back? Well,
0: I, I added a lot of liner notes um, to explain things that maybe didn't make sense if you didn't live through it. Do you
1: find, though, that your personal life does have a, an impact on it? I mean, it seems like you're, you're pretty good at sort of, like, keeping those, your work and your life separate.
0: Yeah, these feel like separate things to me.
1: I think we spoke about this a little bit the last time we talked. Um, you know, you do tend to insert yourself in there a bit. I mean, the penguin is kind of a, an avatar for you.
0: Yeah, definitely. The parts of myself that I'm inserting into yeah. the cartoon are my, a are my tattoo on your arm Well, now. that's, that's a, I have a tattoo of, of Sparky the Penguin that was, uh, a result of the Kickstarter because we had to raise... I may not get these numbers exactly right, but we had to raise, I think, 80000 yeah. to publish the book, and I thought maybe we would limp across the finish line, and I was not going to make any money myself. I was going to make sure the team got their money, but I was going to forego my own profit. We hit, we hit, you know, if we just hit this, all I wanted to do was get the book published, so that was my expectation. So at some point, I thought, oh, I'll just put up this silly stretch goal. If we hit a quarter million, I'll get a new tattoo, and I already had tattoos, so this wasn't completely ridiculous, but I did not think we were going to hit a quarter quarter million, but we closed out over 300,000 and
1: so I got the tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) It would have seemed too lame not to. I mean, obviously, when you're the author of the strip, so there's going to be a piece of you in every one that you do. Why is it necessary to sort of have this stand-in to to sort of speak directly to the audience in that way?
0: Okay, so I think that is uh, uh, that was an early result of the format of the strip. Mm. Uh, You you know, the the artwork and a lot of the approach, a lot of it is based on mid-century advertising and the clip art clipart uh ish And it has that voice that sort of, gosh, duh, is it? yeah. or it did have that voice. Yeah. I mean, it has changed a lot, especially in the current moment. But it had this voice of, gosh, isn't everything wonderful? That sort of thing. So what I found was that I was kind of often writing in, in the double negative in a way. That I was sort of trying to say what I was really trying to say with these characters who were saying the exact opposite.
1: So being kind of ironic.
0: Yeah, but with the characters presenting their 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 beliefs completely sincerely it is kind of almost a colbert approach in a sense right exactly and th- at a certain point I, I just wanted a character who broke format and spoke direct and said directly what yep. i was trying to say and the penguin thing was kind of random i'd always doodled penguins as a as a kid, as a budding cartoonist, and so I just kind of threw in this character who uh, looked like he had wandered in from some completely different cartoon.
1: There have been gradual tonal shifts over the years, but it's interesting you say a lot of that went out the window with the current moment, which I, I, I suspect you mean largely sort of the Trump era. Exactly. And so far as you can put a finger on it, obviously being right in the middle of it, what what is the tonal shift in the strip that you've seen? Um, I may be
0: too close to it to explain it exactly, but I feel like I don't have that Gosh, everything is. You know, I feel like I don't have that generic Republican saying "everything is great." I feel like yeah. there's more nuance to it right now. I mean, I have my guys in my MAGA hats who are who are saying, oh, "Yeah, this is great because we're going to own the libs," and and who cares about anything? Those characters are not saying everything is great because they they support everything. They're they're, they're saying everything is great because it pisses off the liberals, which is basically Trump's only guiding philosophy and his supporters only guiding philosophy, as far as I can tell. And my sort of generic Republicans, I, I think in real life, generic Republicans are a lot more queasy about Trump than they were about, say, George W. Bush. And yeah. it just doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like accurate satire to to have that tone anymore. I haven't really thought this through before, so I'm kind of making this up as I'm talking to you. But I, that's, that's about the best I can come up with.
1: I think you touched on something really profound about the current moment for example let you know let's contrast Donald Trump and, and Mitt Romney right Mitt Romney who just, just seemed right, like a really right. sort of like peppy guy for all of his flaws Donald Trump's main campaign slogan was make America great again right that's a huge ship that's a acceptance that things have gotten really bad so there's nothing to cheerlead for although
0: uh I will note that Reagan uh, Reagan's yeah. uh saying was uh very similar. It had he, one more word. He did make America great yeah, again or but, something. But
1: but there's a difference, right? There's a difference in that approach. And and I, I I I don't know. Again, like I was not really around for the first Reagan campaign, but it does feel that the approach is different. Well, Reagan Reagan was
0: uh, famously at least famously presented himself as the sunny optimist. Yeah, he was a cheerleader. uh, We were going for the shining city on the hill, whereas Trump is this apocalyptic, crazy person who is saying we're going to make America great again because it's a shithole. I mean, if you recall his uh, inauguration speech, it it painted this portrait of this bleak, dystopian America like something out of the, you know, something one of those scenes in the future in the Terminator movies or something. That seemed to be his, because he is, you know, he believes, you know, I don't know. This man has access to more intelligence, you know, in the information sense, not not in the brain sense, but he has more intel than anyone in the world. And he gets his information from Fox and friends. And he genuinely believes, I think, that ICE is keeping America safe from the scourge of MS-13, which is devastating America. I mean, you know, you're just it is like the drunken guy at the end of the bar who only watches Fox News, except he became president. I mean, Trump famously doesn't drink but he has that mentality
1: yeah i remember the phrase dry drunk being tossed around a lot when george w bush was in office there was yeah. sort of a sense of that i feel like having all the alcoholistic well, tendencies without being an alcoholic
0: yeah I it's probably i don't know if i can talk about these things but there are certainly rumors that donald trump partied heavily in different ways in the in the uh disco era and i have noticed that every time he comes back from uh mar-a-lago he's very peppy for a few days he does so. sniff a lot doesn't he he does i am just making an observation i am not making any claims. I, I
1: It would be so hard to get sued for saying something negative about Donald <laughs> Trump. At this point. We all sort of talk about how we have to sort of unplug. I've been a, a news junkie to some degree, off and on, and I've started meditating and like and running and drinking like wheatgrass and all these things. And mm-hmm. and part of that is like try, is trying to unplug for my own sanity from from time to time. I don't
0: have the luxury. That, it's it's my it's my job, and so yeah. you know this. And I've you know. It was bad during the campaign. It was crazy keeping up with it during the campaign. and But there was
1: a sense at least that there might be a light at the end of that tunnel.
0: Maybe. I mean, I will tell you that one of my cartoonist friends I, w- I was talking with right before the election and then my friend said well you know obviously he's going to lose just go ahead and file something that assumes that he's going to lose and I said I am not going to make that assumption and if you go back and look at the cartoon I did that week it was this generic fill-in-the-blank cartoon it was a choose-your-own-adventure cartoon basically that you know the point of it being I did not know yeah. who was going to win or lose but when I filed that cartoon um, and I was obviously right to 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 go that route because as it turned out and boy gosh wasn't that a terrible evening? I was up until 5 in the morning, I think. I, I Even though I understood it was possible that yeah. he might win,
1: it still seemed utterly impossible that he had won. I wasn't here during 9-11, but I suspect—this is probably going to be an awful analogy—but I suspect that in certain ways the day after the election was kind of as close as we've gotten— since then because there was just this Paul in this city walking around
0: I was up in Connecticut then but everyone I know says that yeah yeah, there was just sort of a exactly but you know so I have been dealing with Trump and especially once he was elected and you know that year was one of the hardest years as a writer Mm -hmm. that I've ever had and then my uh, my personal life kind of underwent a, a negative change that I wasn't anticipating. So it it has felt like the world has been on fire and my life has been exploding. And it's, it's just like, there's no respite.
1: You're not alone in that. And it's really sort of, it's hard to to divorce those external forces. I mean, I find, you know, I find that in my life, things tend to domino and and things tend to sort of cluster with negativity you know i'll lose my job and then go through a breakup and some of it's sort of self-fulfilling and some of it touches on one another but i think part of what's made this living through this time so difficult for people is that they're aside from like the cortez election like there have been very few bright spots and there's very few things that really point to a possibility that things could get better it just sort of feels like
0: well, it has felt that way for, for this period of time. Now now, we're hope, now everyone is hoping that at least uh, Democrats will regain some power uh, in the midterm election and the balance of power will shift somewhat.
1: The impact that the Internet has had on us is so profound that things will never be the same. And I'm not saying they're always going to be bad, but they're never going to be quite what well, I, they I would were.
0: go larger than the Internet. The impact that Trump has had yep. on us means that things are never going to be the same. It's going to take a very long time you know, assuming that this country survives this, assuming that democracy survives this. And I think that there's even odds on that. Uh, it's going to take a very long time to recover from the damage it has been done. The, the judiciary is going to be stacked for decades. It's a very grim moment.
1: Do you feel that your job has become more important in this era?
0: No, I really don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As I say, I feel like there's only so much to point out. Everyone sees what's going on. None of this is hard to understand, but I still believe in what I do. I mean, I compare it to a drop of water. Like any individual drop of water doesn't matter that much, but collectively can have a lot of impact.
1: The role to me is very clear what impact you can have when a Democrat is, is in office. is sort of like, again, pointing out the profound issues with these people, these and, figures. And for instance,
0: one thing I yeah. often pointed out um, was, okay, getting back to the kill list and the, yeah. the, the drones, drones, the yeah. extrajudicial assassination program, people would say, but, you know, we trust, we trust Obama. This is fine. We believe in Obama. And I say, but you don't know who's going to have this power next. Yeah. You don't know what this precedent that you're setting will lead to. You know, we don't even hear about it anymore, mm-hmm. but I assume that Donald Trump has continued this program.
1: I think you tweeted something about that and somebody responded that it's, yeah. it's actually gotten worse, but yeah. things are so crazy that nobody talks about we're not even paying it.
0: attention. Mm-hmm. thing about this, Donald Trump is in charge of the drone assassination program. Like yeah. We could have shut that down during mm-hmm. the Obama administration if people had been willing to challenge Obama on it. And, and I mean, people were, but you know what I mean? Like it, it could have stopped there. It could have ended there. We did not have to we collectively, this country, did not have to set this precedent of this insane extrajudicial power for the executive and give it to Donald freaking Trump.
1: Yeah, a pointing out these things about someone like Obama in in an era in which it's clear, I assume, to 90% of people who read your strip that the president is a a shitposting buffoon who is ruining the country. What kinds of positive impacts or, or what role can you play, aside from, again, pointing out, these things that are pretty clear to everybody who sees him. Well,
0: all I can say, um, you brought up the old line earlier about preaching to the choir. Yeah. I have said many times that if that's a bad thing, then why are churches full on Sunday morning? Like, there, there is a role for preaching to the choir, even if that's all it is. I think that that serves a purpose, too.
1: Are you able to take a week off? Well,
0: um, I basically no. Um, I am actually going to go on vacation uh, in a couple of weeks. And at this point, I think I'm just going to run some reruns. I think I'm going to go, you know, I've got a very deep archive at this point. I think I'm going to find some old generic cartoons and give myself a break. Previously, I would always, you know, get ahead on work. But the idea of getting ahead in this news cycle just seems ridiculous. Like I can't possibly know what's going to, ha- you know, I could try to get ahead on the work and, and we could be in the middle of some I, I can't even see here, here's the problem I'm sitting here trying to think of the absurd scenario that's more ridiculous than anything that might really happen and I can't do it here because who the hell knows, but we could have um, He hasn't kicked a dog yet You know, he he could go out in the middle of uh, Fifth Avenue and shoot someone, yep. okay? It's just, it's, it's hard to, to do that and I think I'm just going to cut myself slack for like the first time in 25 years and just run a couple of yep older cartoons and take an actual vacation.
1: I can speak from firsthand knowledge that getting back to this this um, conversation that you had with yourself when you were moving here and whether or not, you know, you're going to take a break from the strip. At,
0: at a very transitional moment in yeah. my life. And, and
1: and speaking as somebody, you know, I, I used to do, I did a comic site called The Daily Crosshatch for a number of years and I started a job and we put the site on hiatus and that was it.
0: Yeah, that, that was part of the, that was part of that um, thought process too. I thought that if I took off... Yeah three months or six months I wasn't sure I was getting my job back and my job is really tenuous as it is I still get a lot of income from print papers are dying
1: but it's also just sort of hard to get back into the routine once you've been out of it for a little while oh
0: yeah that too but I'm just saying I'm I'm kind of holding on by my fingertips as it is and i'm not sure that taking a bunch of time off was i'm not sure i would have come back from that
1: i talked to a lot of people who do daily and weekly strips and a lot of them you know like bill griffith is a good example of this and and he actually has since sort of fulfilled this in recent years but um there's this desire to do something like a little bit more long form Mm -hmm. or more sort of more cohesive narrative do you have the the bug to do that
0: i don't know if i have the bug um but I think about it, I, you know, as I kind of keep alluding to talking around, um, but I've been in this kind of awful moment in my life. And, uh, I, I decided at the beginning of the year, very consciously that the main thing I was going to ask of myself was to continue the weekly strip was to keep hitting my deadline. So I haven't, I've been dealing with just a ton of crap and, uh, I, I haven't really had a lot of extra bandwidth for any any other projects or anything bigger. You know, I may at some point do something autobiographical because I this this stuff I'm going through. You know, most of the really important graphic novels have come from some sort of really interesting personal story like like Durf's uh, uh, Mm -hmm. thing about Dahmer or or Alison Bechtel's book. And up to this moment, I didn't feel like I had that story. And now I kind of do. It's just a question of of how to tell it without people getting hurt in the process because it's a a divorce situation. It would have a lot of... It's hard to know how much I can talk about without um, uh, damaging people that I don't want to damage.
1: And let's be honest, I mean... if you were out of it, you would know that you're you're not out of it yet.
0: Oh, nowhere near. So you need no, no. I, distances. Uh, I can't. I'm 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 yeah. in the middle of this thing. I don't have any distance on it.
1: I, is the strip still fun for you? Is it still enjoyable? It's. Uh, I
0: don't know if it was ever
1: fun. <laughs> 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 it's work, man.
0: It is satisfying. It is still satisfying to do work that I'm proud of.
1: And I suspect that that one of the things that doing that, you know, the volume a few years ago has afforded you is ability to take stock in that and and perhaps maybe not really take it for granted in ways that you might have in the past.
0: Right. And, and, And maybe to just sort of, you know, like for a long time I would approach it every week completely anew like it was something I had never done before and I wasn't entirely sure I was going to be able to figure out how to do it this week and that's partly a a byproduct of just this kind of work where you know I have the penguin occasionally or whatever but it's not it's not like a it's not like a daily strip with a set of characters who are just kind of interacting in the way that they always interact like you know I I feel like I'm reinventing it every week I mean I often end up in more or less the same place but I think I've kind of finally reached a moment where I'm a little more. If I don't have something written in the middle of the week, I I will still go out at night and mm-hmm. and hang out with live friends life. or and live my life. And I, I I have just really in this moment specifically, I have kind of decided to accept that I've been doing this for. 27 years or so and that i'm probably going to get something written by the end of the week
1: but it doesn't feel like going through the motions
0: i it does not feel like going through the motions it's just been a rough it's been a rough patch and it's 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 been hard to uh it's been hard to focus so the work might the new cycle aside the work might stretch into the weekend sometimes in a way that it never would have before just because i'll have days where my brain is just not working
1: that consistency having this thing that you have to come back to that must be keeping you sane
0: um you know that and other things but you know um it's it's good to have and,
1: and you know like
0: there's i have an audience like i i have i i get quite a lot of feedback i get quite a lot of, it, it it is it is a uh it is one of the ways in which i'm rooted in the world at a moment when the ground beneath me just gave way
1: There you go. That was Tom Tamar recorded that one a while back in my offices in Manhattan. Thanks to him for taking the time to do that and for continuing his work on This Modern World, which has been a rare consistent light in a rough couple of political years. Thanks, Tim. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. Apologies for skipping a week there. It's been a little bit crazy on my end. I was in Asia for two weeks. Just got back in New York City. Slightly jet-lagged, but uh, excited to be working on the show once again. If you like the program, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. If you've got feedback it's rwellcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rwellcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all for our IYL related information like us on facebook and that's about it for now so stick around because we're getting back in the very near future with another episode of R.I.Y.L.